0: Is it a rush to the exits in Afghanistan? America announces plans to end its combat role a year earlier than expected. There have been weeks of diplomatic tension over the Falklands, but how do people living there feel about it all? And what made the government change its mind about Gurkha rights? We talk to the man behind the campaign. The American Defence Secretary Leon Panetta says the United States will stop combat operations before the end of 2013, a year earlier than planned. The United States, which led the NATO invasion of Afghanistan in 2001, has previously said it would withdraw most combat troops by the end of 2014. Panetta said the US troops would shift next year to a supporting role, training and advising Afghan troops. Since then, Downing Street has made an announcement that British troops will step back from a lead combat role in Afghanistan by the end of next year as well. So what are we to make of all this? Our reporter Jeff Mead is at a meeting of defence ministers starting in Brussels today. Hello, Jeff. Um, Let's start with the Americans. What are we now to understand by what Leon Panetta's statements have been and how people have reacted to them?
1: Okay, Leon Panetta told reporters on his flight over here to Brussels uh, during the night, the quote was... Uh, hopefully by the mid to later part of 2013, we'll be able to make a transition from a combat role to a training, advice and assist role. Now, that's really set some, uh, the the cat among the pigeons here at the uh, thrice yearly meeting of defence ministers of of NATO. And um, Anders for rasmussen the Secretary General, uh, spoke to the media this morning, uh, really very much to row back on what Secretary of Defence Panetta had said, Um, and it really all comes down to what do you mean by combat, and is the ending of combat operations uh, a a, a sudden uh, event, or is it something which NATO uh, insists has been planned all along since the Lisbon summit of 2010 that would be phased and would be gradual and would begin uh, as early as next year, and um, uh, Secretary General Rasmussen went out of his way to say that, uh, yes, by the middle of next year, the middle of 2013 all the areas of Afghanistan will be under Afghan National Security Force control. So the question then is, well, why would you need uh, the number of ISAF troops there, foreign troops there, uh, supporting the Afghans, if everywhere in the country uh, it is local forces that are taking on the fight against the Taliban? So I think what NATO's position as it's uh, evolving on this is that everybody's right. Panetta was right. Downing Street are right, and indeed President Sarkozy was right when he said uh, last week in his talks with uh, President Karzai that France would hope to bring combat operations to, to to hand over to local forces by 2013. That's been the plan all along. The worry, of course, is that it, it will be construed as uh, a fragmentation in the alliance just when it needs to look uh, most united. And of course, it, you know, it, it, you can't get away from the, the thought that it's very strong here that this is being politically driven. The, the expression has been used to me recently that uh, President Obama wants to put the Afghan war in his rearview mirror before the U.S. presidential elections.
0: You said that this hinges on the interpretation of what uh, combat operations and the ending of them actually means. Do you get a, a feeling that there really is a consensus on that, that people are speaking from the same hymn sheet?
1: Yes, I do. I think you know, that, that we all know there are areas and, and Helmand is obviously, uh, you know, the, of prime concern in the south where the fight against the Taliban has been stubborn and persistent and difficult. Uh, combat operations there are likely to continue uh, to involve uh, uh, British and other foreign troops and American troops right up to the deadline, right up to the end of 2014. But there are many other parts of Afghanistan which have already handed over to Afghan National Security Force Control and are relatively peaceful. So it will be a, fa- a phased operation. I think they have got their ducks in a row in that, in that sense. Um, it's all a question of time frame. And I think what's the problem for NATO was this idea that everything would stop in terms of foreign combat troops uh, on on the uh, in, uh, New, New Year's Eve uh, 20, 2013, uh, 2014 rather, um, is now uh, is now looking uh, less precise. And I think this is what they what they meant all along. They didn't convey that very well that it would be a phased operation. And yes, you know some some troops, 500 British troops, will be coming home this year, and a lot more foreign combat troops will pull out as their mission is handed over to the Afghans by the middle of next year. So you,
0: men- you mentioned the British troops there. Is there any more detail on exactly how many American combat troops will be coming home next year?
1: This meeting, Kate, is very much a precursor for the, the summit, the NATO summit, to be held in Chicago towards the end of May. And I think we will see this, in any, many ways, this is a rehearsal of arguments which will be played out and discussions which will be had there, and I think then uh, we will start to to get the detail. It's a summit; it's the heads of state rather than defence ministers who meet in Chicago. There we will get much more uh, uh, detail, much more of of, of the, the, the the weft and weave of exactly how this withdrawal is going to be managed. But it's a very very difficult one for NATO. So, so
0: Jeff, um, being out there in Brussels, do you get the feeling that this is not then a rush for the exits, as some people are saying? It.
1: <coughs> Yeah, I mean, that's, that's an interpretation which NATO is going to great lengths to try and uh, 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 and, and put to one side. Um, Rasmussen himself, the Secretary General, said this morning that the Lisbon roadmap, the, 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 the time frame that was agreed there, uh, handover to Afghan National Security Forces controlled by mid-2013 and withdrawal of combat forces by the end of 2014, still stood. But I I think he knows and we know uh, and and anyone with much between their ears can can sense that there is a lot of political drive behind this. Um, It's not just President Obama. Uh, Very few elected uh, heads of state of the NATO countries want to go into elections with the Afghan war still costing lives of their own country's troops.
0: Jeff Mead in Brussels, stay with us. Let's get some reaction from our other guests today. Professor Michael Clark, Director of the Royal United Services Institute, who joins us from Westminster, and BFBS's Defence Analyst Christopher Lee is with me in the studio. Hello to both of you. Um, no, no. Michael, um, there are these two ways of interpreting all of this. The cynics' choice, that there are elections coming up in the US and France, and it looks good to get your combat troops out before then. Or uh, simply more detail emerging on the exit strategy and the transition. Uh, which of these two views do you subscribe to?
2: Well as we said the in a way they bo- they're both true Uh, in that technically it is the case that NATO can say that this is consistent with the Lisbon decisions. But Panetta is not so naive that he doesn't realise the effect some of his words might have. Um, If it was the throwaway remark, it was a very peculiar one, and more likely it was trying to fly a kite and and, uh, soften people up for the idea that the United States is looking for the earliest drawdown of combat operations as possible. Remember, he said he hoped, he didn't say that we would, he said he hoped that we would be free of combat operations by the middle to end of next year. But the political message behind this is is there are two messages here. One is that this will spark a rush for the exits, uh, undoubtedly so. And the second, more importantly, is that this will set up a a narrative in Pakistan and Afghanistan that the United States is on the run. Um, That is understandable politically, but from a tactical military point of view, this is close to disastrous, I have to say, because it, it is um, a precursor to the idea that this operation is not going to end smoothly in the way that NATO plans and which it can still claim it is doing. In reality, this will end in a political messiness with the the, the story in Pakistan and Afghanistan that the the, the coalition did not have the... Uh, the staying power to really see it through.
0: Uh, so Michael Clark, did, did you believe then that we're really at a turning point as regards the future of Afghanistan?
2: Yes. Yes, I mean I, I have to say that I think that uh, in the south, in Kandahar and Helmand, uh, the, the troops there, are, uh, for the last two years they have been winning the battles but th- we are losing the war for reasons that are out of the control of the troops in Afghanistan, for because of what's going on in Pakistan, because of the way the United States has changed its view of, of Afghanistan, because of the relationship between Pakistan and India, all of those things are out of our control. And they are creating a political situation in which our military efforts do not connect to the political realities anymore. That's not to say that those efforts are worthless. They are worthy efforts and they will make a difference ultimately in Helmand and Kandahar and people will be better off because of it. But our political aim of establishing a stabilised, independent, democratic uh, Afghanistan is rapidly slipping away.
0: Uh, Christopher Lee, uh, this difference between the political efforts and the military efforts on the ground, how do you think these statements we're hearing from both America and Britain are going to go down with the military commanders? I think
3: to some extent they anticipated them. And I was in Washington on January the 10th and I was being told exactly this and they were using two words and one was hope which Mike's pointed out it's a hope but the most important word that was being used was transition. They hoped to get to the transition stage. In other words they've got to be flexible but that is a political you know that's a political sort of way of, way of putting it. Um as a fellow in the um, state department he was a great Rogers and Hammerstein uh, Oklahoma uh, uh, fan, and he said, "Let's put it this way: militarily, uh, I reckon that we've been about as far as we can go, and whatever we do now will not improve the situation. We've really got to hand this over. It breaks all the rules that we were brought up with, and we've lived with, with politicians who say you never give dates because it just the, the, the enemy just sits there and waits." and says, okay, when they've gone, we drove them out. I'm afraid uh, like Afghanistan, or rather like Iraq, Afghanistan uh, may have worked in a military sense up to a point, but politically... It simply has not worked.
0: Michael Clark, uh, militarily we've gone as far as we can go. Uh, yesterday, a classified NATO report obtained by the BBC and the Times said that the Taliban, backed by Pakistan, remained confident of retaking control of Afghanistan. Um, if the Taliban is so confident of regaining control, surely negotiations with them, a priority for the Americans, will only encourage them.
2: Well, uh, that would be true, but I think we should have some scepticism about the basis of this report. Remember, it was an internal NATO document, um, and there were 27,000 interviewees uh, recorded there, but these are all Taliban prisoners or people who were in some way in custody, uh, and so they are quite likely to tell a very a story that's very positive to Taliban influence. I mean, what the report said is only what we've known for a long time, which is that Pakistan is deeply enmeshed in uh, Afghan politics and that the ISI, the intelligence organisation, Organization in Pakistan and among the Pakistan forces is actively helping and has actively helped both al-Qaeda and Taliban elements. All of that is old news. The question is how strong strongly it, it works. And uh, remember, too, that the Taliban are not a single organization or anything like the core Taliban, people who sit in Quetta and Peshawar making plans, yes, they're core Taliban. But the vast majority of the of the Taliban that are fighting are still fighting. Uh, about 80% of them are fighting within 15 or 20 miles of the place they were born. So it's a very localized movement, and the Taliban are not popular um, in, in Afghanistan. So on, on the one hand, um, the Taliban are not as strong inherently as this report would would make one believe, and you've got, one's got to look at this report a bit more carefully. But on the other hand, of course, there is no um, political stability likely in Afghanistan unless there is, there is some... Uh, involvement from some elements of the Taliban and that was always the case back in 2001. Uh, the problem of 2001 w- was that a victor's peace was imposed and if we've learned anything from uh, the post-colonial experience is that having defeated a group you then have to give them some representation in another government in order to prevent them coming back.
0: Um, Chris Billy, just to go back to um, Britain's uh, Downing Street's announcement today, that Britain's stepping back from its combat role next year, but isn't accelerating um, the handover of control. Do they contradict each other those statements?
3: Um, I don't think they do. I mean, go back even further. Go back, uh, what, uh, last Monday, when the Prime Minister said, listen, whatever we do, we are not... He had a meeting with President Karzai then, and he said, whatever we do, we're not going to dump our role. We will still have a role, whether it's that part of that transition role that the Americans are talking about uh, with, with the training role. But the the, the British and the Foreign Office have been talking about this now, I think, for about five years that we've been reporting on this program. Uh, Pakistan is the key to the future of Af- Afghanistan. Uh, Af- the Pakistanis sold the idea to the British and then to the Americans that they were concerned about the Indians, and that India would have a a future effect in Afghanistan that wouldn't do the region any good at all. And there is the key to it, and there is the key that that the Prime Minister, uh, David Cameron, is talking about, and that is that we do not see this in one country terms. We have to think that this is a regional problem and that almost any part of the region can actually have an influence on the future of Afghanistan. India can, Pakistan can, the Central Asian Republics can. And, of course, Iran can. And there, Mike was talking about, you know, there's not just one Taliban. There's Pakistan Taliban. There's the front line. There's the fighter Taliban. Mm. You, and the final point, with uh, Cameron knows about, you do not... You, when you talk peace, you don't talk peace to your friends, do you? You have to talk peace to your enemies. And there's the problem.
0: Indeed. Uh, well, all subjects, I'm sure, will be discussed at the NATO conference taking place in Brussels. So Jeff Mead, who is there. Jeff, um, other than exit timetables, how much talk do you think there's going to be at this conference about America's commitment to NATO and its allies, particularly in the light of the stringent American defence cuts?
1: Yes, one of the things they've got to get to grips with, and they'll start that process here, is uh, post-Afghanistan, uh, the shape, the size, the cost, the commitment to uh, what will be a, a, an enduring commitment to uh, support, uh, support the government of Af- Afghanistan, even if it includes former Taliban enemies. Um, That will continue, and the key decisions on that uh, will be made in Chicago uh, later this spring. One of the issues that uh, they are focusing on on the two-day meeting here in Brussels of uh, defence ministers is something called uh, Smart Defence. Essentially, that means uh, what the British have done and aspired to for a long time, interoperability, uh, sharing uh, facilities, sharing costs. And the Danes have tabled a very interesting uh, uh, idea today, their defence minister, uh, that NATO as a whole should uh, source and store its ammunition uh, centrally, mm-hmm. rather than doing it individually on a nation by nation basis, which would uh, appear to have obvious cost oh. benefits, and that was welcomed by uh, the Secretary General at the, uh, the the opening session of the meeting so um, whilst Afghanistan quite rightly remains their key operational priority they 're already looking uh, beyond that to how they as an alliance, can do what they need to do and perhaps uh, uh, assume greater burdens All at right. no greater or even lesser cost and the other vexed issue is missile defence, uh, much of NATO wants it, the Russians don't, they regard it as a threat and uh, the Americans say that they must have some kind of interim plan oh. uh, for that missile defence shield uh, by the middle of this year, so that's going to be another very, very difficult sticking point at Chicago
0: Alright, Jeff Mead in Brussels, thank you very much Sit Rep with Kate Still to come on the programme, how do you campaign so successfully that the government is forced to change its mind? We talk to Peter Carroll, the driving force behind the push for Gurkha's rights. The FBS zip-rep. Tensions between Britain and Argentina remain high as the 30th anniversary of the Falklands War approaches. David Cameron and the Argentine president have accused each other of colonial behaviour over the islands. Today, the Guardian newspaper reports that British diplomats have accused Argentina of plotting an economic blockade by attempting to stop all flights from Chile reaching the islands. We've been talking about the diplomatic tensions on SITREP for a while now, but today we can actually speak to someone who's there. Our reporter, Tim Cooper, joins us from the BFBS studio at Mount Pleasant Complex. Uh, Tim, uh, you've been out and about speaking to people. What have they been telling
4: you? Well, Kate, it's very interesting talking to people because we're getting terribly excited in the UK about this. David Cameron says this, the Argentines say that. The local people here are telling me, look, we're used to this. We're used to Argentina using politics, using economic blockades. One person even described it as economic terrorism to try and push their point of getting sovereignty back on the islands. But locals, their key point about all of this is, look, we want to stay British, self-determination, therefore we are going to stay British and no matter what Argentina says about it, that's the situation.
0: So the. the Not worried, Tim. What have the Islanders made of David Cameron's stance on all of this?
4: Well, I think the Islanders are pleased about the stance that's been adopted by David Cameron, fairly robust. And I spoke with Stacey Bragger, who's the news editor of the Falkland Islands radio service,
5: about this point. We're very appreciative of uh, the very strong stance that David Cameron and the government have taken. The strongest show of support we've had from the British government since the 1982 war, so we're very pleased of that. And um, as for Argentina, we're used to, it here all the time, um, ever since the war, they've been trying their best to make life as difficult as it can for us. It's been referred to as almost an economic form of terrorism. They're um, doing all they can to disrupt economic activity to the Falklands. So um, the current situation isn't anything new for us, but we're just trying our best to get on with life
4: as best we can. So that's Stacey Bragger, the news editor of the Falkland Islands radio service. You say, are people worried, Kate? Well, they're not. They don't think anything is going to happen. But there is a deep-seated fear of what happened in 1982. A lady told me the other day it will stay with her forever the moment an Argentine Chinook overflew her house. So there is that fear of what happened back then, but they're not too worried at the moment.
0: Uh, We found out this week that HMS Dauntless is on its way. What can you tell us about that?
4: Well, it is, as the Royal Navy described a routine change of ships down here. HMS Montrose was on the South Atlantic station. She's being replaced by Dauntless, who, of course, is the new Type 45 destroyer. It is routine, but at the same time, it does send a message, clearly. The most capable ship the Royal Navy has ever had, and it's coming down here to the South Atlantic. So, whatever they say, the message to the Argentines, I think, is very clear on that one.
0: And, of course, Flight Lieutenant Wales is due to arrive soon for his RAF deployment. How's that gone down with the Islanders?
4: Well, I think the Islanders are slightly bemused by our extreme interest here in all of this and Flight Lieutenant Wales. They, they've been telling me, look, the key thing about this is not who he is, but what he does. They absolutely rely on the search and rescue capabilities of the RAF here, uh, two Seeking Helicopters Base covering a huge area. And they're just pleased that Flight Lieutenant Wales, along with his three other colleagues from the 22 Squadron at RAF Valley in Anglesey, are coming down here to continue that good work. I think it's the media and everybody in the UK who's terribly interested in Flight Lieutenant Wales. But, of course, the Argentines are as well, and there have been big headlines across all their national newspapers this morning about that impending visit. For people on the Falklands, though, and here at MPC, very much business as usual.
0: Uh, Christopher Lee, it feels like we've been talking about the Falklands for, on a weekly basis, really, here on SitRap. and um, it's not going away, is it?
3: If you were an Argentinian politician, especially a president, it would never go away. It is the one thing. Do you imagine getting up in the argentinian parliament saying well we've decided after 250 300 years we really don't care about malvinas at all you'd never get elected again no this is not going away and there are commercial reasons but basically there is a fundamental political reason why it will never go away
0: michael clark which direction are we headed here will it all calm down after the 30th anniversary has passed
2: Yes, I think it will. Uh, I mean, these things do come and go. I think it will be an active year for Falkland's diplomacy, for all the reasons that your report has has indicated. And there'll be a bit of a flutter sometime later in the UK when when a lot of naval assets are sent to the Straits of Hormuz, as they almost certainly will be during the course of this year. Somebody will say, well, what if the Argentinians attacked us now? All our navy is tied up in one other place. But of course, that won't be the point, because Defending the Falklands has now, in a sense, moved from a Navy task to an Air Force task. It's all about Mount Pleasant and reinforcement. Um, I mean, the Navy would be involved if we ever had to try to retake the Falklands. But to be honest, if anybody got hold of Mount Pleasant airfield, then there's no point in trying. Um, it's, it's an all-or-nothing game now, but we hold all the cards in that respect. Yeah. So in that respect, it's all very safe, but the political atmosphere just goes very volatile, and I think it'll be volatile for the rest of the year.
0: Yeah, yeah, Michael Clark there, Tim, saying that if anyone got hold of Mount Pleasant Airfield, there'd be no point in trying. What are people there on the island saying about that?
4: It's a very interesting point that Mike Clark made there. Yes, and people here tell me, look... The situation is we've got a great defence force on this island and that's what we're reliant on. They've also talked about the continual sort of ex-heads of sheds, if you will, saying about, look, we don't have aircraft carriers, we can't retake the Falkland Islands. And that has angered a number of people here. They say we've got enough to deal with this. Argentine aren't going to uh, do anything. Mike Summers is a member of the legislative authority here and he talked to me on that very topic.
6: What they're actually saying is that we couldn't do again now what we did in 1982, and I think we all accept that, but the situation is very different. We have a very credible uh, deterrent force on the Falklands. Uh, You have an Argentina that is not able to, to launch an invasion anyway, we accept that what Admiral West and Mike Jackson and others are saying, you know, it is no longer possible to, uh, to you know, send the task force as we did in 1982. But from our perspective, that's not the issue. What they're arguing about is defence spending. What does bother us, I think, is, is when the likes of Mike Jackson, who was, who was here not that long ago as uh, head of the Defence Force, and absolutely assured us that the defence of the Falklands was sound with the, with the philosophy that we have then making the sort of comments that he did. And one wonders what he thinks Argentina makes of that, almost almost inviting them to have a go.
4: Oh yeah, That's Mike Summers, the member of the Legislative Authority, talking about concerns about people in the UK he feels have issues with defence spending, imposing them on the Falklands.
0: All right, Tim Cooper on the Falkland Islands. Thank you very much for that. Um, Christopher Lee, um, we couldn't do what we did in 82, but do we need to?
3: Um, we couldn't do what we did in 82 because, in theory, because we haven't got the... Uh, we haven't got the assets, especially the, the two floating aircraft carriers, the airfields. You put a Type 45 down off the coast of uh, Argentina, and it can do it. The Type 45 is like the same thing as the transition from sail to steam.
0: M- and Michael Clark, do you think we need to be able to do what we did in H2?
2: No, I mean, 82 was 30 years ago, but in military terms, it might just as well have been 100 years ago. I get quite annoyed when people argue this. I say, well, it's it's a bit like asking, can we still win the Battle of Waterloo? (laughs) I mean, the the fact is, the the situation is totally different. And uh, do we have adequate forces to defend the Falklands? Yes, we do. If we lost the Falklands, it would only be by an act of complete military and political incompetence. Now, that's not unknown in our system. But we'd only have ourselves to blame if we let the Falklanders down in the situation that we now find ourselves.
0: All right, Professor Michael Clark at RUC. Thank you very much for your time today. This is BFBS
2: sitrep.
0: How we treat the thousands of Gurkha soldiers in the British Army has become a highly emotive and controversial subject. Most recently, the arguments have been about the proportionally high numbers of redundancies. Before that, there was the long-running battle to secure the right for all veterans to settle in the UK, a campaign whose success has brought new challenges. Well, Peter Carroll founded the Gurkha Justice Campaign, famously backed by Joanna Lumley, and has written a book, Gurkha, about his battles. And he joins me now. Hello, Peter. Um, when did you know about the Gurkhas before you took up their plight?
5: To be honest I knew what my father told me when I sat on his knee. My dad had served in the Second World War and he told me of their incredible courage, loyalty, valour, good humour And apart from that, I knew very little else except for what I saw maybe on the Edinburgh military tattoo on the television.
0: And your initial objective was to fight for the right for all Gurkhas to settle in the UK, not just those, as stipulated by Tony Blair, who'd served after 1997.
5: Well, when I started, no retired Gurkha, whether they retired after 1997 or before, was allowed to stay in Britain and it was brought to my attention, uh, four retired Gurkhas came to my home, to say that one of their friends had actually been physically arrested, dragged to a deportation centre, and was ejected from the country for no greater crime than he wanted to live in Britain.
0: And how instrumental was the support of Joanna Lumley in all of this?
5: Well, it was a bit like fighting an intensive war and somebody giving you a nuclear weapon. (laughs) And I think that we got to the point where the five most feared words in Westminster was Joanna Lumley is in reception. Um, she was a devastating influence because she got people behind in massive numbers. And to be honest, she could out politic the politicians.
0: And with... one of those really memorable moments, uh, Joanna Lumley in the reception when she met Phil Woolas, the Immigration Minister, um, and forced him into sort of looking at the issue again. Um, just tell me what it was like being there at that moment.
5: Well, that was an electrifying day because that came just after we'd had a Commons vote in which the Parliament had stood up and said Gurkha should be allowed to live in Britain. Uh, Joanna had met Gordon Brown and she'd, um, would I say, discussed with him or manoeuvred him into a position where he said he'd look at the issue. And the very next day, the Home Office wrote to the very six Gurkhas who'd won their High Court legal action saying, you have to leave the country. We found out at 11 o'clock in the morning... By four o'clock in the afternoon, we were on the steps of the Millbank TV studios opposite Westminster, and the whole thing happened almost spontaneously, and it was like one of those military operations where suddenly you realise there is no plan, but you've just got to ride with events. It was mm. electrifying, really.
0: One of the uh, the unfortunate consequences of your success is the borderline racism of some communities who now complain that local services can't cope with the density of the Nepalese population. How do you respond to that kind of comment?
5: Well, well the first thing to, I think to do is put it in perspective. I live on the outskirts of Folkestone. This morning I was picked up by a Gurkha taxi driver. Last night I ate in a Gurkha restaurant. And in my area, there is no disharmony with retired Gurkhas. Same, I think, in many of the other towns in Britain. There's a bit of a problem or issue in Aldershot. And I I look at that with great concern. Um, But there is hope there too, because one of the people there, um, Sam Phillips, who was behind one of the groups that raised the problem, as they would describe it, of too many retired Gurkhas in Aldershot, has actually in the next few days holding a a community festival to celebrate the fact that retired Gurkhas are there. Mm. I think we do have to always bear in mind that part of the reason why we have Britain and our communities in Britain is because tens of thousands of Gurkha soldiers helped defend us.
0: Christopher Lee, um, how fairly or unfairly do you think the Gurkhas have been treated?
3: I think that publicly they've been treated, the public perceptions, they've been treated unfairly. And you have to look at why do we have Gurkhas? What do you pay them? The role that they've taken? And they're seen as great heroes. I'm uneasy about the whole idea of being able to campaign and get public opinion moving, even with Ms Lumley, for one group in the in in, in the army.
0: Peter Carroll, how do you respond to that?
5: Well, I actually think that traditionally it's people who do stand up for the armed forces and. Joanna was a daughter of the regiment. I think the unfairness that the Gurkhas had to cope with was extreme. So I think it's an entirely de- defendable point of view that she intervened, or we intervened, to put this historical wrong t- to rights. So I, I actually think that Go on, it's good that people power can overcome the vested interests of For the, the establishment. For the
3: moment, it can. Uh, people will get bored with this, you know, and the Gurkhas will bored be left what? on their own. Just the way the Argyll and Southern Highlanders when Colin Mitchell campaigned for their retention, it looked as if it was going uh, okay. Two years later, three years later, people said, Gentlemen, oh, "Yes, we've done that."
0: We will have to leave it there. I'll let you two argue this one off there. Uh, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you, Peter Carroll and Christopher Lee. Uh, let us know your thoughts on today's program. You can follow us on Twitter, tweeters at bfbs sitrep. Thanks for listening, and bye bye for now. BFBs sitrep.